Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me, Jason Fried, co-founder of 37signals, Basecamp, Hey.com, book author, watch collector, parent, <laughs> partner, I, I can go on and on. <laughs> You're wearing many hats and uh, it's fascinating to learn how you were able to build a very successful company while doing that. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, great to see you here. Uh, I've even reached out to my audience on LinkedIn to see like what people would want to uh, talk to you about and lots of fascinating questions. And when then I went to Twitter and searched <laughs> for like what people are looking for regarding you. And one of the funnest uh, questions that came up was, why is it free and not fried? And huh. <laughs> not my choice. That's just, that's just how it is. <laughs> I don't know. So, it's, it's definitely spelled fried, but pronounced freed. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah. think probably actually truly um, my, uh, I don't know how many great grandparents ago, but I think when they came to the US, they shortened it. And I think it would have probably made, been more obvious what it was when the whole name was longer. So I think this is just sort of uh, what we're left with. Okay. All right. Yeah. We'll go with it. All right. So uh, the first question may be uh, a little bit not so obvious, uh, but I was just reading through your, uh, your blog and on, I know exactly on May 10th, uh, you wrote something about AI, uh, about the fact that, you know, AI is, is fascinating, it's here, but uh, what I think about it is you have to watch out, you have to sit back play with it, but don't really rely on it heavily. So, and it's been six weeks and I'm saying that because that's your usual cycle. So <laughs> did something, <laughs> did something change or are you still solid on, on that mindset? I, th I still think it's the right mindset. I think there's, it's very early on. It's fascinating. I think you should meet it with curiosity. What bugs me about sort of the, the narrative right now is that people are being told they're already behind. I mean, this thing is brand new and it's like, well, if you're not on top of it, you're already behind or you're falling behind. I, I just don't think that's a really good place to put people. I don't think it's a good mindset. So I'm meeting with curiosity, paying attention to it, seeing it evolve, seeing it change. And um, if, it, if it makes sense to bring it into our stuff at some point, we'll do that. Um, if it doesn't, we won't. But I don't think anyone really knows like the best use cases yet and where it's really going. So, you know, pay attention, play with it, enjoy it, have fun, look at it as a a toy and a tool. Uh, these are these are two good things that can go together. Oftentimes, people think toy means it's like not powerful or something, but toys are wonderful things. So I don't. I, I think it is a toy, and I think it is a tool, and that's a good way to look at it. And that's that's where that's where I'm at right now at this point. All right, I using yeah. it in any way for for any of the businesses. Is there any way to to play with ChatGPT while working on Basecamp? Um, I've used it. I've explored playing with it around um, helping me write, um, or I, I, again, more of a, out of curiosity. So I'd write an essay. I'd write something on my blog and I would just give it to ChatGPT and say like, what would be a good headline for this? Give me 10 headlines for this. Like, give me 10 headlines with five or fewer words. Uh, sharpen it up a bit. I'm sort of curious about like what it would, how it would read what I wrote and what its interpretation of it would be and how it would summarize it into five words. Like that's, I haven't used anything that it's produced, but I find it to be a fascinating exercise to just see what it does with something that I've, I've written. So I don't use it to write something for me. I don't, that's, I like to write, so I wouldn't want to do that, but I do like it as a, as a lens or a mirror, as a reflection on what I've written and getting its take on that. So that's been kind of fun, um, but nothing that I've, I don't think I've actually used anything that's produced other than, you know, use it for myself, for my own thinking. Okay, makes yeah. sense. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, since, you know, since we already started on like the whole six week cycle, uh, first thing I want to know is where did six week come from? Why is it six? Why is it not two or 10? It just evolved. Uh, we used to work with no, this is, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I, I, we used to just work. Things would take as long as they would take. And then, you know, you find out some of the downsides of that. And there's some upsides and some downsides. And then at some point you time box some things. And I think we used to do things for many, many months. So we would do things quarterly. And 
What you eventually find out, of course, is that um, work expands to fill the time available, which I think is, is that Parkinson's law? I'm not sure which law that is. There's some law called something. And work expands to fill the time available. And so you give something three months, it takes three months. Um, and you kind of realize, well, what if we gave it two months? Well, guess what? It takes two months. And the extra month we would we would have gotten from going an extra month, like what would we really get out of that? Well, the things we were finding that we were getting out of it weren't really worth it. And in fact, it would be better to get it done in two months and then have an extra month to work on other something else. Or we get more stuff in packed into a year uh, that way. And so we just kind of kept reducing that time frame, And then eventually six weeks felt like the right amount of space, right amount of time to be able to still do something meaningful, but to always see the end from the beginning. So you, you always feel a sense of this isn't going to last forever, which is good, especially when you're working on something that you don't really love. Cause we sometimes have to work on things we don't love. You just have to work on things that are necessary sometimes. And it's nice to go into it going, it's going to be over pretty soon anyway. It's also good because it keeps you honest. It keeps you focused on the scope and keeps you focused on the thing that you're making. Like, what does this really need to do? We don't have any slop time here. We can't mess around with something it doesn't need to do. What does it really need to do? So it really gets you to focus on the essence or the epicenter. Um, and it gives us a chance to reconsider what we want to do with the product, you know, every month and a half, which is a wonderful time frame. We can commit to something, focus on it, get it done, and then reconsider. This is important because um, one of the problems with doing things that take a long period of time is that you, you, you feel a lot of pressure to make sure you're doing the absolute right thing because you only get a few swings a year or maybe one swing a year to choose to, what you're going to do. We get six or seven or so swings every year to decide what we're going to do because we have six weeks at a time and then we take these two weeks off in between. So it just, it just feels right. It feels right for us. Um, we, we've rarely had to extend something beyond the six weeks in a material sense. There's been a couple projects that have taken two cycles to get done. Um, but, uh, typically it's, you know, you're, you're done within six weeks and that's by the way, max, most things are done in a couple weeks, uh, two or three weeks maybe. Um, but the bigger features, the bigger ideas are, are, are done in six weeks. And just to be clear in case people are curious, cause everyone always asks this follow-up, which is. Well, you can't build a whole product like you didn't build hay in six weeks. No, we didn't. We stacked a bunch of six week cycles back to back to back over a year plus to build that product. But we still worked six weeks at a time and decided what we're going to do every six weeks. Okay. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. All right. It wasn't my follow up question. Uh, okay. My follow up question <laughs> was about uh, is about uh, the fact that you also each uh, each project that you have you have two people working on it. You have uh, a programmer and a designer, right? And that's kind that's right. of like the um, the usual setup for, for any new startup, right? It's whether uh, a programmer, a designer, a programmer and a product person, uh, it's almost never a programmer and marketer. So in your case, not having a marketer there in this bubble, uh, why why such a decision? Why isn't there a person that knows not only how it's going to be built and how it's going to look, but also how it's going to be sold later? That's a good question. That part of it is part of the decision to build the feature in the first place. So when I'm thinking about building a feature or coming up with an idea for a feature or we're batting around an idea, I'm always thinking in my head, how will I tell the story of this thing, this feature? So that's, it's kind of baked into it, but our, our other feeling is that everything is marketing. So how well something works is marketing. Customer service is marketing. The name of the button that you use is marketing. Um, the, the clarity that you have in a feature or, or, or the confusion is marketing. It could be bad marketing, right? There's bad marketing too. Um, so everything is that, but from the very beginning, I'm thinking about what, what is this adding to the product? What story can we tell around this feature? Um, and sometimes there's not much. It's just like, well, this is just something it needs to do because like we, we need this. But for, I'll give you a quick example. Like we added recurring to-dos not too long ago. So yeah, let's say you have a, you know, a bill to pay every two weeks or whatever, right? This is not like a breakthrough idea, right? But you build it and then you have to figure out how you're going to talk about it. I mean, you can just say we added recurring to-dos or you could say, you know, imagine you have a bill to pay every two weeks. 
Um, now, you know, before you'd have to make a new to do every two weeks. Now you can just make it once like that's, you know, is that marketing? I don't know, but it's, it's, it's how you present the idea. So, so that's something I'm thinking about. That's something a few of us at the, at, at, who are creating these ideas are thinking about, but I don't, I don't put that down to the team because their, their job is to build the feature. And then my job or someone else's job is to explain the feature. Um, so, but it is, it is part of the thinking when we're considering how to do this. Okay. All right. Yeah. Interesting. So and actually, um, can I add yeah. something to this? Sure. <laughs> when building, when building a new product, this is primarily what I'm thinking about. So we're building a calendar for Hay right now. Um, and, um, I've sort of, sort of mentioned this in passing. So maybe this is like my first official mention of it, but, um, it's a launch. <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be a little bit, but we're working on it. And, there's lots of calendars. So one of the things that we want to make sure that we launch with is some real novelty and not novelty just to make something different, but we want to add some new ideas to the industry. It's the same way we did with, Hey, when we launched, Hey, there's a lot of email thing. People are very used to email. Hey is a very different take on email and our calendar is going to be a very different take on calendaring. So when I'm thinking about the initial set of features, there are many things that this calendar probably eventually has to do, but initially will not do because we want to focus on more of the novelty initially to set it apart from the rest because that is part of the story. So I'm thinking about the feature set that we're creating also is being wrapped into the story and which features will make a good story. How can I tell an interesting story about the product initially? And then we can backfill some of the more table stakes, basic stuff that we know it needs to do later. But just building a calendar on par with everyone else is doing everything everyone else is doing. It's not much of a story there. So we want to separate. We, we want to initially make, make a point that this is a different thing. So the marketing is big, a big part of the feature selection for the initial V1. And that's, that's something that comes up frequently when building a new product, less so when building individual features, but we are still thinking about the story as we're making the features. Right. But you're also kind of uh, using uh, building on public is it's it's not like you're you're talking on Twitter about everything that goes into into this calendar. But hey, you talked about it before you talked about it now on the podcast. So there are people that are going to learn about this already. Right. So marketing started even before, you know, anyone knew that the calendar is coming. Yeah. And, and we will get, as we get closer to launch, we will of course like be more specific. Um, I'm being very general right now, partially because we don't even know what it's going to be. We don't know. We don't make like, we work six weeks at a time. So I know what we're working on these six weeks. I don't know what the next thing we're going to build is good. We don't have a full plan. There's not a list of things that needs to do these 22 things. And once it does those 22 things, it's going to ship. It'll ship when we feel it's ready. Um, six weeks at a time. So I, I, can't even talk more specifically about it. I just know that it, that the things we're focusing on right now are more of the novelties, the, the new ways to think about time, the new approaches to the way people look at their day. These are the things we're focused on initially. Um, but yeah, as we get closer, we'll, we'll reveal more, we'll share more, tell more stories about it, show more interesting screenshots of it. Um, and, and, the, and the things we're going to show will be very intentional um, and because they can be wrapped into a story. So that, that is a big part of it for us. Yes. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades, all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay, all right. Yeah. And this is not obviously the, the first uh, story of building in public. And a lot of founders are a bit afraid of the concept, right? They would share something 
but maybe hide the secret sauce or like hide uh, exactly like how many hours or how many six week cycles it took, right? So <clears throat> in your case, when you first started this approach, like showcasing something, telling people what you're building, how you're doing it, uh, was there a fear that, you know, somebody's gonna take it, somebody's gonna be the first and uh, how, to, how to overcome it? And is it even feasible to like think about that? Yeah, it's never been a fear because, I mean, you're just fortunate if anyone's paying attention at all. Uh, and in most founder situations, if you're starting something brand new, no one's paying attention. So no one's sitting there waiting to take your idea that in, in, when no one knows who you are. It's just not even a thing. Um, I think you get more and more, You, I can see people getting more and more nervous about it the more successful they get, the more reach they have, because then they think people are paying attention. But the, the truth is, no one really cares until you have the thing that's real, like, you can talk about these things, you can get excited about it, but it's all vaporware and it doesn't really matter until you actually make the real thing. And everyone else is focused on their own thing. People aren't sitting around wondering what to do next. Like they're already building their own stuff. So it's not like someone's gonna see something that you put out there and drop everything they're doing to do your idea. Everyone thinks their own ideas are the best ideas. Um, and, and then again, like if someone does something you're working on, whatever, it's already been done too, unless it's brand new out of nowhere, which is incredibly rare. I could point to 10 other examples of someone doing something already that's similar. So it's, it's not like you're really ever bringing something thoroughly unique to the market. Sometimes I suspect that happens, but very rarely. Um, so I, I'd, be, I'd be more afraid of people not knowing who you are and what you have than um, being afraid of someone taking your secrets. I mean, this is something we've, we've believed from the beginning. We, even in, in one of our initial books, I think it was in Getting Real, if it wasn't in getting reels and rework, this idea that we emulate chefs. So chefs write cookbooks and they share their recipes. Like this is what chefs do is they make food and they're saying, here's exactly how to make this thing that I make and sell in my restaurants. Now you would think that chefs would be afraid to do that because God, if someone knows all my recipes, well, they're going to then just open up a restaurant next to mine, make the exact same food I make and put me out of business. That has never happened in the history of restaurants, probably. It's not an actual fear. Their fear is no one's gonna even know I make good food. Like I'd rather people try to make my food and then come to my restaurant and see how it's really made and taste my version of it and get the word out about who I am and how I cook and what I believe about food. So that's what we try to do. We emulate chefs, we share our recipes. Our recipes are how we work, how we market, how we hire, how we think, how we design, uh, and we share them in different versions. Sometimes it's in a book, sometimes it's on Twitter, sometimes it's on LinkedIn, sometimes it's in a video, whatever it might be. Sometimes it's here. Um, but but uh, I would never be afraid of sharing the things that we're working on. The timing is important though. What I don't wanna do is share things too early when I can't deliver on those things. I also don't want to share things that we end up not doing because then we've made a pro people feel like we've made a promise to them. So we're very careful about deciding what's actually going to happen. And the only way to really do that is to really get close to launch and know what's going to make it into V1. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. I think, I think that's very logical. Uh, actually, uh, about, <clears throat> about the book, about getting real, uh, one of the founders of the company that we acquired earlier, uh, in SaaS group tower, uh, asked me to tell you that getting real was one of the things that actually pushed them to create a company and bootstrap it. So that's great. <laughs> thank I'm you so for glad that. To hear Thanks that. For, for, for the inspiration. You know, it's a great company, great founders. So. Oh, great. I'm so uh, glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. It's, it's always <laughs> wonderful to hear, to hear that, especially getting real, which was, I think came out in like, I don't even know when that was 2000, mid 2000s, 2006, something like that. Eight. I don't know. I think it was six. I don't know, but yeah, it's great. Great. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, when I heard about that, I was, Super, super happy. Uh, okay, uh, another question is about asynchronous work and the fact that, you know, it's the king now and how you're very strict about not having meetings or having very few of those. So what I want to, to get down to is, yeah, okay. So I have very few meetings and I love it. Uh, I have very focused work every day, uh, maybe, I don't know, it's not eight hours, obviously, because then you're exhausted and the next day you don't do anything. But uh, three, four, perfect. I'm very happy about it. Um, 
But if you're, say, in a six-week cycle, there is you, there is your designer, you kind of have to be always on the same page. I'm assuming it's a very fast-paced work, very intense. Um, and, well, you're not supposed to meet. Uh, how to structure work in a way and communication in a way that, you know, you do not spend the same hour or two that you would spend in a meeting just writing to each other, trying to get the person to understand what you want. So how much actually this no meeting um, thing saves in time? Yeah, so um, when I think of meetings, I typically think of many people gathered around to have a conversation. Or actually not a conversation, sorry. Just many people gathered around. When two people talk, it's a conversation. Um, so two people working on a project will talk to each other. Um, but it's primarily still done initially asynchronously and they're showing work to each other. So a great way for a designer to interact with a programmer is to sh for a designer to deliver a design and for a programmer to hook something up and for them to then use it together and talk it through. So typically we'll talk about things once there's something to use, something to look at, something to, to explore. Um, and then conversations kick off. Sometimes they're asynchronous. Sometimes they're real time in a chat room. Sometimes they're on the tel just the telephone, like audio. You don't need video to talk to someone necessarily, right? Sometimes it's video because there's screen sharing. Um, what we try to avoid, though, is having more than two people on these things. The, I, I look at them as, as phone calls, two people having a conversation. That's really what it is. So as much as as necessary is, is how often that happens. Um, but so the, to, the problem with meetings traditionally is that you pull a bunch of people off work, unrelated work often, um, and then you tell everyone basically to stop working for an hour and six people get together to have a discussion about something. To me, that's incredibly inefficient, um, especially when you're working across time zones and you have remote teams, which we do. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I think the, the, the point is, is to be flexible and to, to do what, what makes sense. But the thing is that's really important is to always have something concrete to discuss um, versus being abstract. What ends up happening when, when two people are having conversations that are abstract about something that doesn't exist yet or something they can't look at is they, they often reach what we call an, is an illusion of agreement. This idea that you and I agree, we think we agree on something. And then we set off and do the work and then we come back later and look at it and go, that's not what I thought. That's not what I thought. I thought we had this discussion. I thought we agreed. Well, we agreed on an illusion because we couldn't see what we were actually working on and discussing. So that's why we always try to get real with the work. That's where the, the name of the book, Getting Real, comes in. Get real with something and then talk about it if necessary. And again, the medium doesn't matter so much. But the nice thing about asynchronous primarily is that when we talk about asynchronous, we talk about writing something up in detail. So it's not like posting a chat line and waiting eight hours for someone to get back to you. It's like writing up something with a screenshot or, or thought or kind of long form, letting someone absorb that and then get back to you later. So that's kind of you know how it goes for us. Okay. So it's like <clears throat> very advanced customer support. I have this. <laughs> so you have to look at it and then get back to me. Yeah. I, I think in general... When you have something real to look at, you can both look at it or use it, whatever. It may not be something that's artistic to look at. It might just be a thing, um, you know, or like how, it can be as, as basic as like, how does this, how does a scroll, uh, let's say you're building a, a chat thing or something and, and someone, it, it, you know, you scrolled up and back in the transcript and then someone types something new, like what should happen then? Should it snap down to the new thing? Should it stay where it is? If it stays where it is, should there be an indication that there's something new? Where should the indication be at the bottom at the top? And so someone would build that, some version of it, um, not prototyping it in some prototyping tool because that's not real. We'd build the thing and suggest, what do you think of this? And then they might use it together and go, eh, let's, let's play with it together. You know what? This doesn't feel right. I'm expecting to be looking here, but this thing is over here. Can we move it there? And they might move it in real time and then reload and look, look at it again together. So those are the kinds of conversations that happen in real time when there's something to look at, but the prior conversations are typically not real time. They're heads down. I'm going to get this thing built. Let's talk about this. Let's get it done. Then let's meet or discuss uh, it by using it together and then making decisions in real time. 
Okay. All right. Yeah. That, that, that makes, that makes sense. All right. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Another, uh, another question kind of about that, the same, uh, the same stuff. So again, when you work asynchronously and, or you have like very focused work for many hours, it means that you really know what you're doing, right. And you, you kind of have, um, this much authority or this much seniority uh, in the question, right? So you cannot really, I, I do not see uh, like juniors just being deep in, in work for, for many, many hours without reaching out to, to anybody. So um, when you're hiring, are you mostly going for like uh, someone who's had a ton of experience, a senior position, somebody who will be okay left alone or is there a, a place for more junior people who, who still have a lot to learn? Um, when we hire, we primarily hire people that are a little bit more senior um, because we're a small organization and don't have a teaching infrastructure necessarily. We just, it's just not how we're built. Um, that said, we have three interns this year, uh, this summer, and um, you could consider them junior, although they're quite smart and quite clever, and we throw them into the real work immediately. So they're involved in building real things. And one of the best ways to, to learn is to make something uh, and then discuss it. So it, it doesn't help so much to work with someone who like, I mean, the people we're bringing on even as interns, like they can, they know their way around things. They can make stuff. They've made stuff in the past. So we want them to make something and then we can talk about what they made. Um, so th they should have heads down, quiet time, focused work time to build something. And then they can, of course, ask for lots of help and they can ask for help ahead of time. But they still need to do the work to get the critical feedback that helps them grow um, versus having someone sit next to them and like do everything for them. Or people typically aren't shouldn't be asking questions all the time about the work. They should just like try to figure it out as best they can and make something and then ask the questions. I find that to be the best way to do it. So, um, but in general, when we do hire, we hire more senior people, but even senior people, you know, the way we work is quite a bit different. So they have to get adjusted to the way they work. You know, here at 37 Signals, people have a lot of autonomy. There is no, no one is giving them a list of things to do. There's not a single team that has, here's no manager is saying, here's the 14 things you need to do today. It just doesn't work that way. People are independent and they have to figure out how to build the things they want to build on their own. Getting used to that is hard for some, but the best way to do it is to just to dive in and, and do it. And then they, they find their way pretty quickly. Okay. So how I do you, this is also, uh, if I can add work? something, this is about being yeah. honest about your organization as well. So some people would say like, that's not like, why don't you hire more junior people and, t and bring them up and teach them? And it's a great point. And we've, we've looked into that in the past, but we're just not, we're simply just not built that way. And the way we work is not really um, conducive, I would say, to, to training in a traditional sense. Um, so we need to have people who know their way around to begin with. And, and then we, of course, help people come up. But it's still through the course of actually doing the work itself and not through, let's say, a training program or, or something more traditional in, in that respect. Right. Yeah. So it's not like um, top to bottom kind of decision that, you know, this is what you, you're going to do this week. Uh, okay. Yeah, there, there is a direction that we think people should be heading, but they are in charge of deciding the actual work itself um, that needs to get done to get where they want to go. All right. So how do you basically, and of course, like you translate this vision uh, in your books and in, in your talks in your podcasts in your blog everywhere, but, but still, you know, reading about it, listening about it, it it's totally different from, you know, actually getting to work with you. Uh, how do you, I, I, and again, since you already said you're, you don't really have a training program or anything, but how do you still integrate people into this and like show them that there is autonomy that they have to embrace and not be afraid of. Yeah. One of the best ways to do this is to, since, you know, we only have two people teams, two person teams is to pair up someone new with someone who's been around for a long time. So you might have a new programmer working with a designer who's been here for 12 years or, or a new designer working with a programmer who's been here for eight years or something like that. So even though there's just two, it's typically not a good idea to pair up two brand new people 
who don't know the lay of the land. They don't know the methods. They don't know what they're expected to do and how they're expected to do it, especially if they've come from organizations that don't work this way, which is most organizations don't. I wish more did, but they don't. Um, so teaming someone up, even if they're in different roles. So this is the other thing is that you don't need to just learn from someone in your role. Like a programmer doesn't just only have things to learn from other programmers. They have things to learn from designers and vice versa. Um, so that's, that's the way we primarily do that. And then we pair two people up to do a project, typically one veteran, one newbie. And then at some point, depending on how often we hire, everyone becomes more comfortable and, and they can then run on their own with, with two new, like two people who've been working together for, or working here for a year is actually good enough because they have enough history under their belts and they've shipped many things because we work in six week cycles. But so by the time you've been here for a year, you've shipped six plus meaningful things, um, which is, which is really a great, uh, you know, great set of work to have under your belt. And to, and at that point you're pretty damn experienced with how we work. So it doesn't take long for someone to become a, a bit of a veteran. Um, but that, that's a very important thing initially. All right. Something yeah. that uh, I read from you, and um, I cannot remember where exactly, but uh, it was about firing. And this is inevitably another thing that happens in any business. Um, so you hire senior people, you give them autonomy, you give them space to be really free and creative about what they're doing. Uh, but, well, sometimes something happens, you know, people have to leave or, or you have to say goodbye to them. Um, and this is something again, that we talked about here on the podcast a few times. Usually this is something that, uh, in the end of the podcast, to have a question about the biggest win and the biggest failure, um, uh, is considered a failure for, for a lot of founders, especially at the very early stages when someone leaves. So how do you approach that? Uh, if people are leaving or if people, you know, are not just a good fit. So how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. Typically uh, people have about a year to find their way and for us to find our way with them. So it, obviously it's a mutual thing. Some people just don't like an organization or don't find this is the place for them. And that happens. And some people might leave early because of that. Other people might stick around and see how it develops. The same thing is true on the company side. Um, someone's new, you got to give them space to, to, to find their way and fit in. But at some point, um, and we consider that point to be roughly about a year, it should be clear that, that they're going to last or not. And this doesn't mean that um, they're as good as they're ever going to be. People continue to grow, but you have to see that this person is the right fit for you and they're the right, and, and, and they feel the same. Now, that doesn't mean a year is the first time we talk to people about this. Like there's early reviews, people who are new are catching up with, with their team lead frequently. There's sort of more of a 90 day review period. There's a six month, there's, there's these things that are happening along the way, right? So it's not this surprise out of nowhere, although getting fired always does feel like a surprise, even though you're kind of talking along the way. Um, but the, the, the fundamental, we, we try to, we try to boil things down to, to single questions if possible. And the best question I've ever found when, when evaluating someone at the, at the one year mark is knowing what I know now, would I hire this person again? That sums up so many things. Um, it, it's, 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 it's such a wonderful way to really, um, get to the fundamental question, which is, um, does this person fit here? Are we excited to work with this person? Are they excited to work with us? Would I hire them again? And often it's in a heartbeat, like absolutely. If it's like, ah, I'm not so sure, then you really have to dig deep there because why is, is it, is it you're feeling that way because you don't want to let someone down? Letting someone go is incredibly hard. Uh, it's hard, hardest for them, of course, but really hard for you, hard for the organization. You got to really get there. And when, when there's that level of doubt, it typically doesn't turn out well. You t typically like are then fighting to keep someone around and you're making excuses and whatnot. It's, it's, it's not a good place to be. So we just want to be like, this is this, this Derek Seavers thing, which is like, hell yeah or no, basically. I don't know if you're familiar with that thing that he's written up. It's a wonderful little yeah. essay. I think he has a book about it too. 
but it's kind of that. And that's where we get to in the first year. We don't say hell yeah or no. We say like, would we hire, no, would we hire this person again? And it should be an enthusiastic hell yeah, basically. And when it's not, you have to explain why it's not. Again, it shouldn't be a surprise, but even though it will often feel like one because it's a shock, um, but uh, it should be it should be clear that the trajectory is has sort of ended at that point for somebody. Um, there's performance improvement plans and people because sometimes people have been here for three or four years, and you might ask that you might see their performance wane or plateau or whatever. And sometimes someone needs to get on a performance improvement plan to kind of kickstart themselves. Sometimes they need a little bit of a sabbatical to reset because there's something else going on in their life or they just feel a little bit burned out. So there's things you do at different points with different people, depending on how long they've been here and, and what the situation is. But the first year is very critical for us. And we just have to make sure we want to hire someone again, because that's really what you're doing. The end of year one, the beginning of year two, you're rehiring someone is the way we're looking at it. And uh, that should be a pretty clear, just like it should be very clear cut when you hire that person that you, this is the person. They are, we want them here. It should feel that same way at the beginning of year two. All right. So yeah. uh, honestly, like looking at, at what you're producing, like the blogs that, that you're writing and what David does, it felt not as strict. These are conversations. So there's no like, okay. um, there's no, um, there are no like numbers to hit. There's no KPIs. There's no, none of that. Okay. There's, no, there's none of that. There's not like you need to have had the, you need to have progressed in these different ways that we can quantify over the, it's, it's conversations about actual work and, and the team lead who's responsible for that person uh, or the department head or who, however it's set up, like they need to be intimately familiar with this person's work, how they work, their style. And that comes through conversations. It also comes through working directly with this person. It's very obvious to everybody where someone's at, actually. And that's those are the kinds of performance reviews we do. It's it's not a formalized process. It's but there are some formal conversation points that we try to stick to roughly within specific time frames. Okay. So yeah. coordinating people. Something that, yeah. that, that you preach. Okay, yeah. cool. So uh, a couple of questions that, uh, that actually came from LinkedIn. Uh, since we talked to, uh, already about like short cycles and shipping fast and all that. So how do you, and every feature is, is kind of a, another launch, right? You're still trying to, to see um, how you're going to sell it. Who is it going to be for? So is there a measure uh, for, for this kind of product market fit? And what is it for you? And when do you start uh, at least trying to measure it? Is it before you're building it, while or after? Yeah, we're, I would say, probably unusual in this respect in that we don't, we don't measure anything um, when it comes to, like, did this feature move the needle? I shouldn't say anything. There are moments when we do some, some of that. Um, when specifically the feature is designed for that purpose. Like if we're trying to improve onboarding, it, it's, it's about onboarding. It's about like getting more customers, you know, signed up and, and, and whether or not they're sticking, there's some of that. So, so in those specific cases, yes, but we don't apply that to everything. Like if we add recurring to do's, like we're going to add recurring to do's because we know we need to add recurring to do's and I'm not going to measure whether or not people are using them or not. Like they are, or they aren't like they're there now. Not everyone's going to use them. And what does it mean to measure them? Like, I don't know. What is my expectation of how many people are going to use these? I don't know. And, and does it matter if someone uses it twice a year? Well, if that's all they need it and it's there, great. But if you're like, well, someone should use this on average eight times a year because of some arbitrary, like, that's my problem with, with measuring things like that is like, what does it really mean? And you're like, well, 22% of people use this. Like, okay. Uh, and you're like, well, we were, supposed, we were hoping for 25. Like, why are we hoping for 25? Like, wh where'd that number come from? There's a lot of these, like, things that people make, these targets, and you try to hit them. And I don't know. My, my point is, it's more of a holistic approach. Like, we're trying to improve the product as a whole over time. And we're looking at sales. We're looking at profitability. How is the company doing over time? It's, it's, a, it's a much bigger thing than trying to measure individual movements. Unless, of course, the individual movements are designed specifically to see movement. 
Like when I when we design recurring to dos, I don't expect that to move the needle, but I think it's an important part of the product. Um, we just improved this feature in Basecamp called Lineup, which is is a way to look over. It used to be just look over the next few weeks to see what projects are in play. Now you can move forward in time and backwards in time, and you can add different markers and stuff. This isn't really going to move the needle, but it's about rounding out the product and rounding out the feature in a way that we've we've heard from customers that we also believe it should be better at. But there are some things that are about moving the needle. Signups, we're about to launch a new version of the Basecamp.com homepage. We hope that moves the needle a little bit. So we'll kind of pay attention to some of that stuff. So it, it, it's about applying it in the right places and not this dogma that everything needs to be measured and you need to know whether or not it was worth doing something. You should feel whether or not it's worth doing something and then other things you should know. Um, but I don't think you need to know everything as long as you feel most things. That's my take on it. Right. I think a lot of founders are just a little bit afraid of like building features that are not used. Then you just overcomplicate your product and you have a lot of features that no one wants. So uh, I think that's what the question is about. Yeah. To me, that's a, an upfront conversation though. Like why are you building things that you don't think anyone's going to use? Like uh, what, where the ideas for these things come from and, and what is your comfort level with that? And what does it mean to get used? I mean, in some cases it's like, like there's a bunch of administrative things that probably don't get used very often, but like you might need to have them. How often do people really change their credit card? Like not probably that often, but you probably need to have that. Things like that. Like, would you remove that from the product because it's only used 3% of the time? No, you actually need that in the product probably. So I, I know I'm being a bit simplistic here, but to me, the conversation needs to happen up front. And I don't think this constant, frankly, I don't think constant reflection on the work that you've done is worth the effort most of the time. I think you're better off trying to make good decisions, the best decisions you can, and you move on from there and you go on, go on to the next thing and continue to improve. And then look at the whole thing. Are we making progress? Is the product getting more traction? I don't know exactly what it is that's causing this, but the decisions we're making are causing this. Let's make more decisions in the right direction. I just, I just don't like this. I don't like piecing everything out. I don't think things can be isolated in, in that way, frankly, as often as we think they might be. There might be cases where that is true. I don't think in most cases that's that's the reality, though. I think things are, are, are a part of a whole, and you should look at the whole and say it's a whole going in the right direction. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I think... Yeah, again, there is this fear that we're just going to shoot and and uh, try to kill whatever flies. Uh, but, you know, what if there is nothing there? Uh, yeah. All right. Just a couple more questions. Uh, the first one, the one I mentioned, what's so far been the biggest win and the biggest failure for like overall the company? The company. Or, yeah, yeah, or maybe I, for I, you as the founder personally, what felt um, like it? Yeah, I mean, this is a big, a big question because there's a lot of things that come to mind. I think, um, um, I think whenever we stray away from our fundamental ideals of of um, trying to build simple things that work really well, I think we we make mistakes. So when we or when we start to overmeasure things, frankly, getting back to the overmeasuring things, we start to measure things that don't matter. Um, or we start to set out these big goals. Like I, I can tell you a couple of things we've done in the past few years that looks like we, we should have known better. Um, we, we, we've, we've set up, we, we, a number of years ago, we had this target, like let's get to this revenue target. What was the revenue target? Some big round number with zeros after it. And we tried to do a bunch of things to try to get there. And then we realized like, we don't like any of the things we're doing to try to get there. And what does it matter if we got there or not? Like, what does it really matter? And so it's very easy to set up these false goals for yourself. And we've done this a few times. And I consider those to be some of the biggest failures in our, in our business, which is chasing things that are artificial for no good reason other than we think we're supposed to. And that might seem like a small detail in a sense, but it's actually quite a big detail because it can take you off your game in ways that are unnecessary and it can make you function in a different way that's not natural. I think it's very important for every organization to find their natural path, their natural way. And when you stray away from that, um, it's like, it's like water finds the path of least resistance. You need to be water in that respect and figure out what your topography is and, and stick with that. I think, because once you start to do things that aren't really who you are, uh, it, it, 
it takes so much effort, so much more effort to make very little progress. Uh, and, and those are the moments I, I regret the most, um, I would say. As far as the, the, the most exciting moments to me are product launches. And, and also, actually, frankly, like coming up with just the right name for something. I love naming things. So when the right name snaps into place, it's very, uh, it's, it, it's enthralling. It's just, it's like, oh my God, that's, that's the name. So I love naming things. I love launches. I love new things, which, which is not how it's always been. I, I think like for a long time, we were focused on maintenance and maintaining things and we still are. But uh, I think we've realized that we're, we're builders. We want to make new stuff. And so we're currently making two new things, one of which I mentioned to you already and something else we're making a brand new thing. Um, and that's, that's really exciting. So I think changing your mind is another wonderful moment um, in an organization. And I think we've managed to do that a few times. And those are also really wonderful moments. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. I think uh, no one has still uncovered the mystery behind Maersk uh, <laughs> and why... Why it's named that? And why? Why it's named like that? Yeah. You'll have to ask David that, but it ha has to do with uh, with uh, shipping containers. Uh, yeah, and, uh, everyone yeah. thought so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but but that was that was David's thing. I, I was not involved in naming that. Um, so you can talk to him. Okay. About that. Yeah. All right, but we finally got it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just <laughs> he would not reveal it. So. <laughs> oh really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm right. No, I think I'm right about that. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, I absolutely agree about the water uh, thing. I think it's just uh, the whole, I'm not looking for like easy way out. You should always look for an easy way out. Like who likes complicated? Yeah. So, David and I perfect. talk about this a lot. I'm so on board with you on that. David and I talk about this a lot that we're, we're fundamentally lazy at the core and that's a good thing to be because um, you find yourself like, what's the simplest way of doing this? And it turns out that's actually usually the best way anyway. Um, you don't want to leave a bunch of trash behind you in terms of like bad code or bad ideas or, that you have to mop up later. But, but yeah, just striving. I mean, there's some situations where striving for complexity is, is an interesting intellectual challenge. But uh, I, 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 since we like to make things, simple lets you make more things. Uh, I think that that's, it, things take less time. You can improve on things after you've launched them in really interesting ways. You can make more stuff because they, as I mentioned, things don't take as much time. There's something really gratifying and satisfying about finding the, the, the water away, the, 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 least, the path of least resistance that does what it needs to do. I find that to be incredibly rewarding versus like, the most complicated solution is, is, in my opinion, very has very little reward in it. Frankly, that's just again, again, I, this is like everyone's got to find what their path, uh, and you know we found ours, and and I think whenever you stray from it, it's and it's not that you shouldn't explore new things. I, I don't want anyone to think like you get stuck in your ways, but you should know what's what comes natural. You should know it's natural, uh, and I think when you start breaking out of that. Uh, anything like any artificial systems tend to tend to have all sorts of un, un, un uh, considered side effects and and then you have to like put something else in artificial to make up for the other artificial change you made and I just think it's better to be natural if you can. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And uh, just one more question. Since yeah. we started talking about simplicity and simplifying stuff, uh, what's the hack that helps you? to to do any any part of your work any part of your job uh, that's you know maybe unconventional maybe super simple but that works for you and that gets things done yeah uh, um i like to start with what something's not going to do so so you know you, you come up with a new idea well what shouldn't it do that's that always has helped me really narrow in ultimately on what's left and what's left is what it should do. Um, so I, I think, I think when you start from the other way, which is like, what should this do? Well, it should do all sorts of things ultimately, but what shouldn't it do initially, I think is the really important thing. And, and something I'm really been impressed with actually is, um, you know, uh, Meta just came out with threads, what today or yesterday, this new, and I I'm so impressed, which is like a, a Twitter competitor or whatever, right? I've only had three hours to play with it, but I'm so impressed by the restraint. 
as a product person, when I look at something, I, I see all the decisions not to do things. So like there's a million things you cannot do in this thing yet. And when they're competing against something like Twitter, the pressure is typically on to have feature parity. You hear this a lot when people are competing with other products. We need to have feature parity. They didn't go there at all. They, they went with fun, some fundamental parity, but they left a whole bunch of stuff out that isn't necessary and is proving not to be necessary right now. And I'm just so impressed by that approach to product development. And um, they, I think they did a really wonderful job of, of drawing lines around like, this is not going to do all these things yet. I'm sure it'll do these things eventually, but right now it doesn't matter so much. That to me is really good product um, stewardship and really good product thinking. And you don't see it that often. Um, so anyway, that, that comes back to like, what should this not do? That's the question I ask myself. Okay. I think it's a good one. I think, yeah. I started analyzing it while we were talking and I thought, okay, so many times I had to ask myself that. Okay. Next time. Yeah. Next time. There's always next time to, to get There's better. Always... We, all, we all make the mistake. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you, Jason, so much. It's been an incredible conversation. Uh, I have a ton more questions left and a ton more questions I came up with while you were talking, but Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Uh, always happy to see you on Sauce and Bound. Yeah, part two would be great. Let me know whenever you're ready. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me on. Sure. Thank you, Jason. Take care. All right. See you around. That was yet another awesome conversation on Sauce and Bound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders, and if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saws.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.